Welcome to our next installment of the Rebels of the Heart virtual conference series, which has been an ongoing segment where we featured great leaders across all different areas of business, different companies, really showing the next generation of leadership and what leadership with a heart looks like in terms of rebels breaking the rules, creating new rules, and, and establishing what a healthy business and personal relationship can look like. I'm Derek Bunston, CEO of Life Guides, uh, and we're building a platform in which caring people to do extraordinary good by using technology to match people who have been through a life challenge of some sort, with those who are going through the same or a very similar experience now, provide peer-to-peer mentorship support and guidance to help people be happier, healthier, and more productive in both their work life and home life and where those come together. So welcome to Troubles of the Heart, Gene O'Wang. It's really a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you, Derek, for having me. I'm super excited about it. Likewise. And obviously, I'm a big advocate and fan of Virgin as a brand and Virgin Unite in particular has a special place in my heart. Uh, and you are leading and have been the founding CEO of that organization, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, I feel really lucky to have worked with just an amazing team over the last 18 years. And congratulations on everything you've created with Rebels of the Heart and Life Guides and I, just uh, really aligned with a lot of the philosophies we have. So beautiful to see. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So so before we jump into some of the work that you're doing and your book, I, I'd love to hear a bit about your journey into this into this role, right? I mean, it, it, you've done so much and I want to ask a lot of pro- questions about the projects that you've led and you're doing, but how did you, how did you navigate your way into the CEO, the founding CEO of this organization? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had in my life what I would call uh, several disruptive detours, yeah. um, which I think have shifted my life for the better. And uh, cause I started in telecommunications in the U S um, company called GTE And then I took my first disruptive detour and worked in a homeless shelter for teenagers and refugees in Center City, Chicago as a, as a Vista volunteer. And that really changed my life forever um, because it made me realize how um, we were not serving these young people. There's about 17,000 young people homeless on the street there and how both government, not for profit and business were all letting them down. So it made me fascinated with how we look at how we drive change working across sector. Um, so that was my first disruptive detour. And then I started to focus on building mobile phone companies in different parts of the world. And one of the second kind of light bulb moments for me was when we were in MT- we were in MTN in South Africa building a mobile phone company. And we literally, we launched prepaid services and made our annual targets within a year. Mm-hmm. And so we went into the townships and saw this amazing display of entrepreneurship where you had people selling calls out of briefcases, out of trailer phones. And another light bulb kind of went out just about up about the power of business to really drive change in the world. Mm-hmm. And then kind of my third disruptive detour is I was working with Virgin Mobile in Australia and uh, and um, overheard Richard in the car talking about wanting to do more philanthropically. So I pulled together a plan um, of what the Virgin Group could do, sent it to yep. him. And then I uh, hopped on a call with him and I'll, I'll never forget the moment standing in my house in Roselle in Australia. And we had a conversation about it. Um, and uh, at that point, I was co-CEO of Virgin Mobile in Australia. And he said, okay, let's do this. So, you know, within, say, a six-month period, I had gotten a replacement, moved to London, and that's when we started Virgin Unite. Beautiful. And out of curiosity, to a two-part question on this, has the love or that desire for impact always been with you and you just kind of refined it through these experiences or did they actually shape and kind of develop, kind of create that desire for impact in you, those disruptive moments in your life? 
Yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful question. I, I think the desire for impact was there through my parents. Okay. Um, my mom was someone who always served others. And mm. so right from a young age, you know, she had us working in nursing homes when we were, you know, young uh, and then teenagers. And so she always had that in her heart. And so I think I always had it in my heart, but definitely at that moment at Neon Street, it was like a transition point for me where I knew I would want to dedicate my life to service and figuring out how I integrated it with business, not-for-profit government as well, because I was so passionate more about the systemic change um, from an impact perspective. So we didn't continue in the cycle of having the same Mm -hmm. issues again and again and again. Because when I was um, in my career helping to start mobile phone companies around the world, you know, I got the chance to work in places like Bulgaria, Colombia, South Africa, Singapore. And what I saw was just many of the same social and environmental issues playing out. Yet we were able to start these mobile phone companies really quickly and get them up and running. But we weren't able to come together collectively and solve similar social and environmental issues. So I became really passionate with how do you scale change? How do you think systemically and at the root cause? So I think that's been the fire in my belly really for decades now since that moment at Neon Street. Got it. And I'm going to come back in just a moment, something you shared, but was there a particular interesting transition of how you came to Virgin specifically? I've got to Virgin Unite, but how you came from just building mobile phone companies to the transition specifically into Virgin? Was there a reason or an attraction or a moment that kind of manifested that? Yeah, there there absolutely was. I remember I had moved to Australia to work for a company called Optus. That was a telecommunications company. Um, and so had a great experience at Optus. We were reshaping the company. But then I really felt passionately about the environment. So I actually left Optus and went to work for a place called the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife in Australia to test out what that would be like working for a semi-government slash not-for-profit body. And I absolutely adored the work and, and getting closer to nature. But I also um, I also found it frustrating that we weren't making actions happen quick enough. And there was almost that breakdown again between government and not-for-profit business. So I got a call from Virgin saying, would you help us start up a mobile phone company in Australia? And uh, and I was really intrigued because I was intrigued about how a big brand worked yeah. um, and how do you take that big brand and use it for change in the world? So that's when I moved across to Virgin Mobile. And so I had the great honor of working with just an incredible team there for uh, about four years, getting the business up and running off the ground. Started in the marketing team, running the marketing team, and then um, then was co-CEO, which was an amazing experience um, from a co-CEO perspective. And then um, then Richard and I hopped on that call. He was on my board, actually, at Virgin Mobile Australia, but he never came to one board meeting because he hates board meetings. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. He avoided them with everything in his heart. <laughs> Got it. So you see, so you're in you're in the car with him. You hear him talking about this passion in his in his heart to make it more of an impact with the work that you're doing in the business world. You create a plan. How does that? How does that plan kind of come to life? Like maybe a more specific question: How did you then, and how do you now define the projects and the initiatives and the causes and organizations that you work with? What's the method that? you kind of used to, to begin this and how has that evolved over time? Yeah, super good question. I, I think in the very beginning, that plan that I built all those years ago, um, I was very focused on how do we take, because we at that time had about 25 companies in 15 industries. So I was super excited about how do we embed purpose 
and meaning at the center of every single one of our businesses, and then do some stuff collectively across our companies. So the first business plan was very much about that. And when we started Unite some 20 years ago now, or 18 years ago, um, we did just that. You know, we worked with the businesses and we co-created with the employees across the company, which was just beautiful. They came up with our name, Virgin Unite. This amazing designer in the group came up with our logo. And so they really had ownership and they really embedded that in their companies. Like, for example, Virgin Mobile in the US, you know, really decided to put homeless youth at their center. So each company had a purpose that was meaningful to them. And then we came across together to do things like putting health workers on motorbikes in Africa. So we had some big projects that we worked on. So that was kind of the genesis of where we began. And then as the companies took that over more and more, then what we started to do is pivot to look at how we could come this, become this little entrepreneurial engine yeah. that really tackled unacceptable issues and systems for good in the world. And that really shaped into your question about how we select projects. We've kind of built this ecosystem of building these collectors of leaders like we started and incubated something called the Elders, which is a group of global leaders that you know was founded by Mandela and his amazing wife, Grasa, um, and then grew into this group of 12 leaders that's now chaired by Mary Robinson. And they, they work both behind the scenes on conflict revolution, resolution, but also on things like nuclear threat, pandemics, the planetary crisis. Um, and so that was the first one we got to the ground. And then we decided to incubate others that would drive systemic change with collectors of leaders. So like the B team, around a better way of doing business, carbon war room about um, how you take market-based models for use carbon. So when you ask the question about selection process, we're really fortunate right now that we built this incredible community and ecosystem of super wise people, frontline leaders, um, global leaders, that every year we listen, learn from, and tap into to figure out what are the places we can make the biggest difference. And then we come back into our companies into the Branson family and say, okay, where can we use our assets to make, have the biggest impact? And we, we run ourselves like a, like a business, Derek, where we try to leverage ourselves by at least eight to nine times um, in anything we do. So we never do it alone. Um, And so it's really a co-creation process and selection of what we do. Yeah, it's fascinating because it is when you look at what you're doing as an organization, you're in so many different aspects, right, and of, of, of the work. I mean, obviously, the common theme is you're, to your point, building collectives. You're, you're uniting people around causes and ideas. You're, you know, finding ways to allocate effectively resources. But it's it's a, such a wide ranging topic of areas that that the organization's done, and I think that's somewhat reflective of version as a brand or what people know of it. But I think it's it's amazing what you're doing, kind of moving moving things forward in a really big way. I mean, when you think about less than 20 years, how many different quote unquote massive projects you're doing culturally and that affect people, planet and purpose in people's lives. It's pretty, it's quite impressive. And so I think it's, it's really exciting. That's why I was wondering, how does it, where do you go from here, right? How does it keep accelerating, expanding, you know, in the next 20 years, for example, because it seems like they're just getting going fundamentally, right? Yeah. And firstly, we just have the most amazing team of people. Um, you know, we just had our, our virtual Christmas party this morning and just, you know, looking at this extraordinary team of people, I just couldn't have asked for a better group. And that's what's made it all happen, really. You know, that group of people, Richard, who's so he spends 80% of his time on this, his amazing daughter, Holly, I mean, his son, Sam, they're all just, uh, I feel very fortunate to work in a group of people who have impact and purpose at their heart. Yeah. And where we go from now is, I mean, this ecosystem, we now have incubated about 18 of these collectives. 
So we have this incredible community and we can get them together. Like, for example, around the environment, um, COP uh, last year or, you know, this year, what we see is B team, elders, all yeah. of them, RMI, which we merged the carbon more in, room into coming together and lifting the focus on issues and impact. And you can have so much more power when you do that together rather than yeah. trying to do it isolated. And like, I love your life guides concept because I think people don't realize, you know, we, we often think we make ourselves when in reality, it's the people we surround ourselves with who make us who we are. And uh, so I love that concept of, of guides and that's, that's the mirrors to us. And I, I think we're so fortunate at Unite that we can have those mirrors of when we're getting it wrong, but we can also have those people just to, you know, lock hands with and say, yeah. we're going to do this a million times bigger than if it was just us sitting in isolation and that's something that I think huge credit to Richard. I don't think we've ever done anything alone. Mm, that's beautiful. Uh, uh, so, and to your point, and thank you for acknowledging life, guys, because we we do see ourselves building a, a collective as well. To your point, a collective of the whole world, frankly, of the shared experiences that we all have of life. So, uh, I think it's really well said by you. Um, something that you mentioned, uh, and I want to go back to that never alone comment in a moment, but. Um, the idea of, of relationships, the idea of building true connection, the idea of, of really building this together, I, I believe that that's core to who you are and what you're developing. You've written a book on this concept. It's fairly new this year. Share with the audience a bit about what was the inspiration for partnering? Why now, of all the times that you've, you know, through this journey, why is it coming to the forefront now? And how is that shaping the way that the organization is evolving in this concept of really connecting individually with people? So that people are not alone, but also relationally with organizations, how the collective kind of grows over the coming decades. Yeah. And this is something I really personally had to learn because I, I really believe that in today's society, one of our fundamental root causes of the problems we're facing is because we're pushed towards hyper-individualism from the day we're born. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can remember um, starting in corporate America and my first incredible well-intentioned boss who I adored gave me two books. Um, and the first one was The Art of War on how to survive in the war that's corporate America. And then the second one was just in case I didn't make it, um, The Joy of Cooking. And uh, so I always could be Betty Crocker if I wouldn't succeed in the, in the business world. And for me, that just lit a fire in my belly that I was going to prove as a female that I could be successful and break every glass ceiling. But I have to be honest, like I, every time I broke a glass ceiling, I felt more and more um, alone and less and less myself, the mm -hmm. higher I got up in organizations. And so I was really reflecting on that as a human. And then I had the chance to work on incubating the elders 18 years ago. And it was that moment of watching these great leaders uh, who were heroes to me, like Mandela and Grasso and Archer Tutu, President Carter, and trying to look at how they had become who they were in the world. And what became so clear right away is that they were who they were because of the relationships they'd shaped around them, either whether that was the elders themselves that were friends or whether like Archbishop Tutu and Mandela had an amazing friendship for years. So did Kofi Annan with them yeah. um, and many of the elders had these friendships for years, but then also their friends, their family, the people they worked with. So I really became obsessed with two questions. One was, how do we build these deep connections in our own lives to become the very best version of ourselves, to have impact on 
other people. And then the second is then how do you take those deep connections and ladder them up to be large scale collaborations in the world? And that was a beautiful thing, Derek, is the more we started to study these relationships and partnerships over the last 15 years, the more we found that at the center of every great human achievement were this groups of friends. And we don't talk about them like the people that, you know, protected the ozone layer because they don't fit into that superhero box. And I, and that was the beauty of how they made it happen is because they were so humble. They were truly working as a collective for a greater good that was way bigger than them. Amazing. So a couple, I'm going to follow on on this for a second. Why, why now? Why the, why was the book this year? Why, why in this moment of time back to collective, collective consciousness of what's happened in the last couple of years? Was there, how did it come to be that this piece of work came to, into existence in this time? Right? Was there, have you been, had this been something you've been ideating for a decade? Was it something that you saw that needed to be published now in response to what happened through the pandemic and the associated changes? Was it, is there, is there, or none of those things? It just came about because you said, this is the work I need to put out there because it helps to galvanize the mission more effectively and highlight, to your point, it's the heroism is in the group, not in individuals, right? Yeah, beautifully said, because I think we forget that as human beings. And I think, you know, the, this whole journey started for me about 15 years ago. And it was mainly in the beginning, a journey that was a searching process for myself of learning, um, because I realized, you know, how transactional I'd become. Yeah. And I wasn't relational anymore. You know, I was, I was just transactional because I was so focused on an end goal rather than focused on building those relationships to help me towards that end goal. And so it started with more of a curiosity for me. And so I started interviewing and I ended up interviewing 65 plus of some of the world's greatest partnerships, all kinds, friends, family, romantic. Um, and then as it progressed more, particularly in the last five years, it became more of an obsession and a passion that the world has become so fearful and so divided, particularly in America right now. Yeah. And um, this became more of a mission and a passion for me about how do we change that? How do we change our incentive structures and companies so they become less about individual achievement and more about collective achievement, partnering? How do we change the education system, education curriculum? Mm -hmm. And how do you make it something that's, again, going to really promote not just individual achievement and gold star winning, but how you how you really celebrate the people that are partnering? And how do we drive systemic large-scale change through that? So the book became really a passion project for me to get out in the world around how do I take this wisdom from these great people that have done it the right way and share it. So it's not my wisdom. I was a curator and I spent um, I spent years just coding all of the wisdom from these extraordinary partnerships and these beautiful patterns emerged about how they built them and what they did. And so I wanted to share that to the world because I learned till I changed my whole life changed because yeah. of wisdom. So I wanted to make sure I got the book into the world to share their wisdom with the world. And so over, I imagine this change took place for you in your relationships over time, but are there, were there, to your point, disruptive moments in your relationships that came as you were writing this book or as you were collecting the experiences and the wisdom for this book? Like, were there moments, like, were there unique points where you're like, wow, that was just, it changed the relationship perspective for you or it changed how you approach, you know, building collectives or, or you know, how fostering ideas, anything kind of tangible in that way? 
Yeah, I think there was a few moments on the on the personal side. I think starting to work with Virgin was a huge moment of change for me because I realized that it's okay to have friends at work. You know, before I think I was taught you have to have the silo of business here, friendship here, and that totally turned upside down when I started working for Virgin and realizing that you can build those deep, meaningful connections. And we spend 30% of our lives at work. So yeah. can you imagine, you know, when you think about that, that void of not having that personal connection at work is just outrageous and ridiculous when you think about it. So I think that was one turning point for me. Um, the other turning point was we were starting the elders and we had set up these two weeks of extraordinary people coming to a gathering that we'd put together over a two, three week period. And uh, we had perfected this PowerPoint deck and we were all ready to go. And uh, people were arriving the next morning. And it was the elders was an idea that Peter Gabriel, the amazing musician and just beautiful human, and Richard um, had uh, to try to figure out how they could get together this group of global leaders that could work behind the scene in conflict resolution, as well as be like tackling some things like child marriage and other global issues. Um, so anyway, but the, this was the very beginning of the idea, so it hadn't even been shaped yet. And I remember the night before, Richard and Peter said, no PowerPoint presentation. It's too impersonal. Throw it in the trash. So we threw that in the trash. And I remember standing in front of the room with my flip chart that I'd worked on all night to try to make up for the um, PowerPoints. And I remember seeing um, President Carter sitting in the front of the audience, just staring at me with his piercing blue eyes. And I was thinking this is brilliant. He loves this idea. This is amazing. He's paying so much attention. And then when I finished, he said to me, I hate this idea. It's never going to work. And this was in front of, you know, a room full of a hundred people that were my heroes in life. And I could see Richard and Peter in the back wall, literally almost falling on the ground. And this was their idea, just ruined and destroyed in front of this room of people. And um, and so we scurried into after like literally I I just wanted to disappear for the rest of my life and go into the concrete, and then we scuttled back into Richard's office and uh, Peter and Richard were just silent. We were all just sitting there in silence, and then we kind of picked ourselves up and we had such belief in each other and such belief in the idea that we picked ourselves up and we said, okay, let's go out for the next two weeks and really co-create this idea with this group, with President Carter, with Archbishop Tutu, with all these amazing people that were there. And so we kind of took off our superhero capes. We, you know, we took, we put our egos in the box. We went out and we sat down um, and, you know, President Carter and Archbishop Tutu sat in the sand, created the values, the mission of the what the elders was going to look like. And by the end of that two weeks, the idea was so much better than the PowerPoint that we'd come in with. And this was such a big turning point in my framing around how important co-creation is and making sure like we had tons of frontline leaders there from all over the world and their value add was extraordinary. So making sure you have the right people around the table. And when President Carter retired in his 90s from the elders, he stood up and he said it was one of the most important things he did in his life. I just got and yeah. It, yeah, it was it so it was just that reminder. He owned it because he co-created it with us. So, so that's what I was gonna ask. Was it was it merely the fact of having him his voice in the creation of it that shifted his alignment or his participation and full contribution? Or was there more to it? Then that was a was there a change in design? Like was how did it shift so dramatically that he went from I'm out 
to them being a principal kind of architect of the entire initiative? Was it literally just the fact that he had that he felt he had agency and a voice in it, or was there more to it in a practical, tangible sense? Yeah, it was, and that's a, again a really important question. It was because he had the voice and ownership in it. Right. It didn't shift hugely strategically, but he he's the one that crafted what that mission statement would be. Right. He crafted what the values would be. So his heart was in it. And before we got on that island, and when I was presenting to him, his heart wasn't in it, and he couldn't he couldn't like I guess understand and grasp around the frame of how it was all going to come together. But when he shaped it and sat in the sand with Archbishop Tutu doing those values, he started to understand in his head, you know, how this could be something powerful in the world. And he put so much wisdom into it that we didn't have, you know, it it said authenticity because when we created it, we weren't the elders. uh, We didn't understand what they, what they felt, what they had done in their lives. And when he did it with Archbishop Tutu and with these frontline leaders, they were living it from a place of experience and authenticity. So the whole plan shifted to be authentic, you know, raw, real. And by the time we left that, and it was just such an important voice because I think or moment, Derek, because I think right now we often forget to ask whose voice isn't at the table. Big, uh, and that's, that was so important. And that was where I was going with that question fundamentally is that just by including, giving the invitation to share authentically and to share the experience and to share the heartfulness with, with intention, the entire outcome, the entire last two decades of that work shifted dramatically. So to your point, back to the work that we're collectively doing here, giving people an outlet to build intentional mirrors of their life experiences, to build containers for healing, to, to share ideas, to improve and to contribute to causes in the workplace and in our families and our homes around the world. I do believe that, that is fundamentally, it comes down to simply giving people the opportunity to 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 be heard, to be seen, to contribute. And that, I think it seems, it's so simple and yet so challenging in the workplace to do it, but it really is that simple is just allow people, give them permission to share and to be a part of that and empower, and give them their own their power, if you will, to contribute to the cause, right? And that's, it's amazing that we have so much, you know, systems around our business, but really on a fundamental human level, it's just about the invitation, right? Mm. And you're spot on. I mean, I think that's where we've lost the plot because we focus so much on systems, on processes, you know, and building the perfect plan that we don't focus on the human aspects of it. And we almost suck the humanity out of our companies and looked at people as numbers in a spreadsheet. And by doing that, we don't get this authenticity. We don't get this. We don't get the power. So so to that point, I'll make it. And this was, as always, I don't have to plan with these questions, but this one's coming up very clearly. So when we look at you, you spoke about magnetic moments. You speak about magnetic moments in these buildings of connection and how the role of joy and creativity and curiosity and inclusion plays a role in that. How do we look at the experience of the last two years, right? Of a global pandemic, of a massive disruption in commerce, of our political and cultural context and how we communicate division. How do we turn what right now I think many people are experiencing as a somewhat traumatic, you know, overwhelming event? into a catalyzing magnetic moment of shared experience for mutual healing, for quantum shifts in how we do business and how we approach relationships and how we allocate our resources in the business collective to do this work. 
right? It, how do we do that at scale? Or and may, I would hope, I would imagine you're you're probably working on this problem, but I would love your insight into how you are tackling that question. Yeah, and I'd say I'd say a few things to that. I think once is um, we need to include everyone in that shared experience. Yeah, because one of the things that we saw is that um, is that nations kind of went into their own boundaries. Right, they excluded. Like we were working a lot with the amazing team from the Africa CDC, and just seeing how they were scrambling, trying to even get a vaccine. Um, was just heartbreaking because we all went into these silos and buckets and protected right. ourselves. And so I think that's the first thing is how do we reimagine global systems where that doesn't ever happen again? Um, and uh, and so those, uh, you know, things like the WHO, things like the UN, I think we need to reimagine what they look like so that they're not leaving countries behind. Um, so that's the first part of that question, I think. Um, the second part, though, is, you know, I don't know about you, Derek, but I, I think one of the things that was beautiful and a gift during the pandemic yeah. was just this, um, with our team at least, it was a sense of vulnerability. Yeah, um, We opened ourselves up in a way that we never had before. And I think keeping that sense of vulnerability that will help us deepen connection is really important that we don't lose that lesson. And um, And thirdly, the other thing we kind of learned in the pandemic was the power of virtual to connect with people in a meaningful way, but that takes a lot of effort. And like with um, with this project, we worked with great partners all over the world, like Skoll, Gates Foundation, Elma, uh, called the Africa Donor Collective. You know, we for a hundred and four weeks, we were on a phone call every Friday with that group. And we made sure we had those magnetic moments, even in the digital space, where it wasn't just about doing the work together, but it was about having play and joy together at the same time, like we would do karaoke activity. You know, we just, we roll in these ridiculously silly things, but just to make sure that people were connecting on a human level rather than just a work level. So I think now we need to take this moment, look at those lessons of vulnerability of how we use technology to connect in a meaningful way and reimagine how we create our incentive structures in companies in particular around how they're built around the human beings having the power in the company rather than top-down incentive structures that are built just on short-term profit um, and how we put kind of, you know, respect, equality, love, purpose, growth at the center of that rather than just how we make profit every day. Well said. So kind of bringing together some of those concepts as well, because one of the things I think we see part of this polarity or this, this the discord we see is based on a fundamental breach of trust. I think that's, and how communication is shared. Back to your point about mobile phones, I think you have a really unique perspective on this, having built, seeing how mobile can play the role in flourishing communications. I believe that's, it's the double-edged sword that it's allowing information to flow any, to anyone and everyone very quickly. And at the same time, it's easily trained, you know, narratives are misconstrued and, and used in a way that might not be for the best intent. How do we, as business leaders, as collectives, get better at communicate, you know, running that communication narrative through to address these big points of trust? Because I think that is a big part of what is the drag, if you will, right? There's a there's a there's a, a natural 
um, skepticism of what's the what's the higher intent of, the, of some of these policies. And people who don't know are far removed from decisions. They they we as human beings we make up stories to support whatever we think is going on. And so how do we get get closer in, in, into those communities to help change those narratives of mistrust? And it's a big question, but I would just well, I don't I don't have the answer, but I would love your kind of just gut reaction on some things maybe you're doing or how you're tackling this kind of brainstorm, right? Yeah. And I think you've hit the nail on the head about trust right now. I think it's it's broken down on all kinds of fronts, but I think we first need to earn people's trust. And this is one of the issues is that we've broken trust right. mainly because of the, the incentive structures we've built on around short-term profit, because they've driven us to do things that don't earn people's trust because we're really not caring about them as a human. Right. Um, and the same thing with our global systems, you know, if I was Africa CDC, I wouldn't trust the global system anymore because we weren't really there for them. Right. So I think we need to look at where systemically we have breakpoints that are breaking trust um, and figure out how we fix them. Because otherwise, anything we do is not going to fix them if there's not that fundamental foundation of really caring for people and earning people's trust. Um, I think the trust, the Edelman Trust Barometer, which I just love, which I'm, I'm sure you've seen, you know, that that study that they do, they've done for 20 years now, and they've uh, done it in 28 countries with 33,000 people every year. So it's quite a robust study, but it has shown very clearly a decrease in trust. But I think there's some interesting things in there. Whilst human beings used to trust um, authority, right. uh, now it's upside down pyramid where we trust people like us and each other. And going back to your point, the danger there is we're going to get in these bubbles of common narratives and not reach out and understand difference and hold a space of able to be, you know, to disagree without being disagreeable yes. and have conversation. So I think that's a danger, um, but also a benefit of how do we build these deep connections with each other to build that trust um, and build that trust within our teams to kind of be role models of trust to help it expand out into the world, which I think is a massive opportunity. And on the digital side, I think you're absolutely right that it, you know, it has, it's a double-edged sword. You, you, we could use it for deep, meaningful connection of, you know, authentic connection. But right now, a lot of the ways it's being used is misinformation, but also the danger, like you see with young people now, particularly young teenage girls is perfectionism, you know, of, I have to be like this, or, you know, it's just pushing people to be more isolated rather than more connected. So I think there's an opportunity for entrepreneurs everywhere in the world to think about how do we create digital tools of connection, like you've done with life guides. Yeah. I mean, that's a perfect example of meaningful connection in a digital space. Yeah. I have, I have a lot of ideas on this topic that I would love to explore with you in a subsequent conversation, uh, but yeah. also I'm sensitive to to your time and, and so forth. So uh, just kind of blowing that, we're coming up on the change of the new year in 2023. It's been a wild three years, to say the least. What are you personally excited about? What's your personal focus going into 2023 um, as you look at both your, your, your individual work, but also what you're building collectively within Virgin Unite and in all the different initiatives that you're, that you're leading and serving? Yeah, I'm super, super excited about um, something called Plus Wonder that's a link to the book partnering. Then really the mission of that work is to how, how do we spark meaningful partnerships and collaborations in the world? So I'm super excited about that. And getting stories like the ozone hole out into the world because it's a story where human beings came together and we did something 
extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It's a story of hope. So how can we get hope and connect people together in collaborations and partnering to really build these meaningful lives in the world? So that's one thing I'm absolutely passionate about. Um, the second thing is, I think we have this looming planetary crisis right now that we are not moving at speed and scale to fix. Um, so I am super excited about how we radically collaborate to look at not just climate change, but also things like biodiversity, land use. There's this amazing model called The Planetary Boundaries, um, a great film from David Attenborough called Breaking Boundaries that I would recommend everyone watch. But how do you get people excited about looking at how we shift our relationship with the planet from one of extraction to one of partnership? Mm-hmm. I think it's a super exciting opportunity we have in the world. And the third thing is right now, you know, everywhere I go in the world, I people want connection and they want love in their life. And I think I'm super excited about how do we bring that into people's lives? I can't tell you the number of gatherings that I've gone to. I was just at one and they were you know, with about a hundred CEOs and they came up to me after and they were like, no one's ever used the word love in a presentation to us. And, you know, I was at another one with a group of students and I asked them, okay, who do you think are morally courageous leaders in the world? And not one of them could raise a hand and give an example. So I'm super excited about how do we spark and lift the people? Because it's not because there aren't those leaders in the world. We're just not talking about the ones that are morally courageous, that bring love into the world. We're talking about all these stupid, horrible stories and all of the garbage and the drama gets lifted into the media rather than the stuff that we should be talking about. I'm so, so, so first off, I'm, I'm, it's, it's wild to me that this is not reaching as much amplification as it is to your point. Because, and to our point, I mean, I, so we were at the, um, the Sherm Visionary Summit a few weeks ago, and this concept came up that these, all these people leaders, the idea of a CEO talking about love was a, was a foreign concept to them. And I'm sitting here thinking, I've been talking about this on Rebels of the Heart for over three years. Like, hello, like we got to get on with this. Like, There's a lot of people who are aligned with this mission. We got to make the voice and the amplification of this work known, because to your point, I believe that, that getting that out there and the work, we needed, we needed an inspiring vision. Right and and the and the individuals, not the that which is the collective of individuals that are doing this, is going to help push this idea forward because it's not about any one leader. But we need to show a vision as humanity that we can work toward. I believe I personally believe that's where our governance leaders have missed the mark. They're not telling a possibility of where we can go as a species, as a country, as a community. We're focused on solving the problems instead of saying, this is where we need to get to people. We need to, we need to, we need to make a better planet that looks like this. This is what it will be. This is the benefit to you. Instead of focusing so much on all the brokenness, we need to, this is what a healed experience looks like. This is what a loving experience looks like. This is what it looks like when we collaborate in our pure humanity, right? That's the inspiration that I believe needs to come forward and be shouted, frankly, from these leaders because it's not being done effectively by the current sources of how we communicate. And so I believe that's an important part of the future. So, yeah, I think you're spot on. They don't, we don't talk about the possibility. Yes. I'm like I'm super excited about the possibility because we could create a world that does work for everyone yes. and with planets. And, but we don't talk about that vision. We don't talk, you know, and it's, it was interesting in some of the interviews because like Ben and Jerry, you know, they mentioned the word love like a million times in their yes. interview. 
And that company was built on love, which is why it was so successful. And I think companies and CEOs miss the mark that they think that's the soft stuff when it's really the hard stuff. It's the stuff that we should be measured on. It's the stuff that we should be looking at as success metrics uh, and how we build that into boards and to leadership teams so that they feel that they have permission to focus on that stuff. Um, and, you know, I was at a medical conference the other day speaking. And at the end, someone asked me that question. They said that, you know, this is great soft stuff, but I get measured on the hard stuff in my board. And I just, you know, it, I think turning that stuff into the hard stuff, into this in, in the perspective of the stuff people get measured on yeah. around love, around how people are connecting in your company, how they're building partnerships, collaborations. And that will lead us to even better outcomes on the financial side, um, which we've seen again and again and again in some of these successful companies. Well, Gene, I am very grateful to know that you're out here leading this work, that you're that you're building collectives, that you're leading initiatives, appreciative of your time and sharing your heart and your wisdom with our audience. And I'm excited for the possibilities in collaborating with you for years to come. So thank you for joining us, Rebels of the Heart. Great. Thank you, Derek, so much for having me on. And thanks all for all the stuff you're doing to bring it into the world. <laughs> <laughs>